Hello, I am the host of Shifting Culture, Joshua Johnson. I just want to come on before the episode and tell you all thank you for listening. Did you know that big things are coming for Shifting Culture and you can be a part of it? We have just launched a Patreon. When you become a monthly patron to the show, you will get our episode ad-free, get early access to episodes, be able to download episode guides, and get bonus shows. Go to patreon.com slash shifting culture to support all that we are doing. Your support means that we can continue to help the body of Christ look more like Jesus. Again, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture. Thank you so much. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Shifting Culture Podcast, in which we have conversations about the culture we create and the impact we can make. I'm your host, Joshua Johnson. Go to shiftingculturepodcast.com to interact and donate. And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review, and then share it with your friends and network. Previous guests on the show have included Alan Hirsch, Pam Arlent, and Shayla Visser. You could go back and listen to those episodes and more. But today's guest is J.R. Woodward. J.R. co-founded the Missio Alliance and currently serves as the national director for the V3 church planting movement. He has been passionately planting churches on the East and West Coast that value tight-knit community, life-forming discipleship, locally rooted presence, and boundary-crossing mission for over 30 years. We have a fantastic conversation around coaching, the spaces of belonging, and how the powers and principalities affect us, our leadership, and our imitation of Christ. Enjoy the episode. This episode is brought to you by All Nations Kansas City. All Nations trains and sends disciple makers all over the world to make disciples that make disciples among neglected people. If you want to see the kingdom come, if you want to see Jesus embodied, if you want to see a movement of disciples making disciples, check out All Nations at allnations.us. Join us on the leading edge. This podcast is done in association with the MX Platform and 100M Publishing. Do you want to be resourced and equipped to release movement in your context? Well, then connect with movement leaders and practitioners for coaching, resources, and training at the mxplatform.com. JR, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, glad to be here, man. Yeah, you know, I'd love to hear your story as you transitioned into uh, to starting V3. And what, what does that look like? Why did you uh, say, hey, this is where we need to go, what we need to do? What was that mm-hmm. process like for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, I came to faith in college right before my senior year. Uh, four years later, planting my first church at Blacksburg, Virginia, at Virginia Tech, and then went to L.A. and planted uh, three churches there. And uh, and so actually, I thought I was going to go plant, uh, thinking about planting a church in San Francisco. And I yeah. went up there, had multiple conversations, uh, just wasn't quite sure yet. And then I said, OK, I'm going to take two weeks and just try to talk to as many people as possible. So uh, Linda Burquist is a connection that Alan Hirsch mm-hmm. gave me up there. And, uh, you know, she introduced me. She knows everybody in San Francisco. So <laughs> I, I probably met with like a dozen planters, someone who planted 20 years to two months and mm. from the largest to the smallest church. And 
just trying to get a sense of what was happening there. And, you know, was God called me to be there. And I got, I got a sense at that time. And that was back in, um, 2012, 2013, where uh, it just felt like there was a lot of planters there, and there were a lot of more churches that are were getting roots there, which was yeah. uh, not the case before that. And I just about felt like, man, like I wonder if it'd be better for me to help these churches instead of mm-hmm. plant something. Not that like uh, I do think like there's a unique angle that we take. I take on planting, but like at the same time, I just felt you know, uh, that feeling. So then my last guy I talked to, uh, Brown, something, Tom Brown, I think, um, he was a guy who met with, uh, Dallas Willard when, after he wrote the, the spirit of the disciplines back in, I don't mm-hmm. know, the seventies or eighties. Yeah. And, uh, so he was just thinking like, you know, uh, Dallas was saying, I know this works for me, but see if it works for your community. So this guy mm-hmm. was into spiritual formation super early, and uh, I could tell because this guy had a presence about him yeah. and he was very present to me. Mm-hmm. And so this is my last interview of the time. And he just kind of asked me questions for like mm. a straight hour. <laughs> and uh, and then he just reflected back. You know, I know like I noticed when you said this, that you your face really lit up. And, you know, when you talked about this and like wow. then he shared a story. And this is kind of the story that was pivotal for me and kind of got me into doing what I'm doing right now. Uh, you know, having been a planter in 25 years, I really only imagined myself planting uh, for yeah. the rest of my life in that sense. And uh, but he goes, uh, apparently, St. Francis was trying to discern what he was going to do with his future, whether he was going to be a tenor preacher or just uh, stay in one place. And the way he discerned this was he went to his trusted friends and asked them to discern on his behalf. And so they went and they prayed, came back and said, we think you should be a tenor preacher. He says, thanks be to God. And that's what he did. And mm-hmm. so. That story kind of stuck with me, and in a way, like I, I'm always about making communal decisions. I, I, yeah. I kind of rarely do an individual decision, but uh, this was another level because I felt like God was saying, "Well, I want you, I want you to go to your trusted friends and let them decide what your <laughs> next thing is going to be." And that's a, another level of thing. <laughs> yeah, I kind of I wrestled with God on that a little bit, but then I thought, okay, well, who would I have to do this? I thought about seven people and at least kind of one, um, you know, person like uh, David Fitch, who tends to, you know, go against the flow. I, I figured if they're all come up to the same decision, I can take it as from the Lord. <laughs> and so, and so I, I gave them some options. Uh, I can stay in LA and continue to plant, go to San Francisco and plant. I could train plant church planters, or maybe they have a fourth option that I'm not aware of. Uh, after some prayer, meeting together, dialoguing, uh, they all kind of came to the same conclusion. I should help church planters. Hmm. And, uh, and it was, it was a, it was a lot more to the story, but like, uh, it was about a month later, I got a call from the Virginia Baptist who I did some work with before kind of consulting work. Uh, they wanted me to apply for essentially what their church planning arm, which is called B3. Hmm. And, uh, yeah. I kind of resisted for a while because I, <laughs> Baptist did not have a, a great like missional, <laughs> uh, I don't for me, uh, yeah. reputation, you know, in fact, I had read yeah. someone did their master's degree and said that like 40% of the people, if you tell them you're a Baptist church, they don't want to join. And I was telling uh, John Upton, who is a director of Virginia Baptist, says, oh, it's only 40%. <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> anyway, like, uh, yeah, because, you know, t- today, nobody, if you're Baptist church, you don't put Baptist yeah. in your name anymore. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, 
long story short, I, I made an application. I was still trying to discern. Uh, and uh, it took me about a month to discern. But once I did, I called them and said, hey, you know, if that job's real, I'll take it. And they didn't really offer it to me until I felt called to it, which I thought was mm. a really cool thing. Yeah. So that's kind of was the beginning of B3, how I got there. Um, yeah. As I kind of started to, you know, think about things. One of the things I had been thinking for a long time is that we need to move away from this kind of church planting boot camp of seven days or five days yeah. and move to a much longer elongated training mm. where people are on the ground, where they get a coach or two, where we kind of go through more of a week by week thing, maybe eight months long mm. uh, journey as opposed yeah. to, you know, that five thing. So that's kind of, that was what started and, mm. and we, that first year after kind of assessing the situation there, I realized every movement has, there's a, there's an acronym that people use carts, you know, coaching assessment, uh, uh, wait, coaching, recruiting assessment, wait, CA coaching assessment, <laughs> recruiting, training, and support. And the most critical I thought to start with was the coaching and, and the, I mean, obviously assessment along the way, uh, recruiting, you have to do, but the training and coaching together, yeah to me would be a good way to start kind of some movement. So that's how it began. Wow. And it seems like, uh, you know, coaching really got you to that place as well. Just an hour coaching session that you didn't know was going to be a coaching session, right? That, right. <laughs> and, Absolutely. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, that's the power of, of coaching, isn't it? Is to walk with people to, to really to reflect what is going on in, in somebody and be present with somebody. And it, it takes an art. What have you seen as the power of coaching as you're, you're training church planters, as they're going out? Uh, what is that, that power of coaching that you've seen? Yeah, I think number one, like uh, one of the things that we require of all of our coaches is that they've actually done the things that they're going to be coaching <laughs> others to do. Yeah, uh, that, That's pretty critical. And sometimes, you know, yeah. You got good people that you'd want to bring in, but they haven't quite really done what your our training is. And so yeah. as, as good of a person as they are, we've had to refuse them being a part. Uh, because I, I, I ultimately think like when it comes to, you know, like planting, you know, that people are, we're, we're, we learn a lot by imitation, you know, mm -hmm. and we learn a lot about what other people are doing and have done yeah. more than instruction. So yeah. imitation and immersion to me are immersion and mission are the key elements of discipleship. Now coaching, I look at a bit different because we do some of our, most of our training online uh, because we're, we're kind of connecting with the planters in their while they're in their local area. So they yeah. have to have a small team in their area to become a part of the training. Hmm. And uh, I, I, I think the coaches, you know, we have material that they go through. They, we first year we used the Church's Movement uh, book that Dan and I wrote, and uh, but you always have to contextualize, you know, right. the content, yeah. and and so, and and you have to wrestle through, you know, you know how it might fit in your particular context, and so, coaching really does that. They they if you're coaching from experience, mm -hmm. you know, you can really tell that as well. So I, I think those are key elements, obviously good listening and so forth, but there's different types of coaching. And uh, as you probably know, uh, because we're like, I, I think we look at like church planting is like, you know, if you're going to climb the Himalayas, you, you want somebody who's done that before. 
Yeah, and there are definitely. some very concrete <laughs> skills that you got to know if you want to survive. Yeah. And these are these are like non-negotiables. It's not just like yeah. a, a nice idea. Yeah. So, one of our one of our missionaries just almost yeah. died last week on the Himalayas. Just he, he was uh, yeah up in northern yeah. India trying to just climb a mountain, just go on a hike, and he almost died. So it's important that you know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we we kind of talk about like sherpas and like the the need in them and the, and that we're equipping you in the core things that you need to know when it comes to planting a church. And so we take a equipping approach mm. to coaching, uh, which is kind of the, you know again there's like uh, life coaching, there's other types of coaching. Right. All of it yeah. is important and well, but this is a uh, trying to pass on particular competencies yep. that they can kind of enact in their local place mm. and. Part of that uh, requires a learning process that's quite different than what most of us kind of grew up in, which is kind of, you know, usually, you know, what's in our mind going to someone else's mind. So we have yeah. like three processes to our learning uh, formation, which is a meta learning. What's the big idea yeah. that, that God's speaking to you? Reflective learning where you're asking questions and going deeper, yeah. but you really haven't learned until you've done experiential learning. What mm -hmm. are you going to do this week? as a result of what you learned. And then we yeah. start the next call with looking at, did they do that? What did they experience? How was it? And so every week, and the reason why, you know, week to week over a long period of time is yeah. because they really haven't learned until they've done something with the knowledge. Yeah. 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 That's exactly right. That experience, that immersion is, is key, you know, and as I've been uh, coaching church planters, um, as I've found that, coaching itself and that reflective learning and then putting it into practice that week as they're in the situation has created a, a, a situation where we've seen a lot more fruit in our ministry because we've actually implemented a weekly coaching as they're doing mm -hmm. it they're reflecting back this worked, this didn't work where am i headed and they have a foundation of of learning right so they've they've learned they have the fundamentals and they're able to start to, to implement. And so what's what does that look like? What's the the big process for you um, to be able to get people into into those meta ideas, those big ideas, and then that experiential learning and then the reflective with the coach? What does that process look like for planters? Yeah, yeah. Well, so like I said, we, we tend to uh, there's a very little bit of reading, uh, and we have about eight competencies that we work through. And there's probably like three to four, you know, subdivisions in each of those competencies. Mm -hmm. And so you're just really taking a, a very small idea reading. They, they, they kind of reflect on what they're getting from that. We, we go through, or, or they, you know, they share their big idea. Uh, we, we have some reflection questions that they're already thought about and wrote up. So by the time we get to the discussion, uh, they're already kind of, you know, have thought about it. And so uh, they've had to read and, and put up their stuff before we meet on our call. I think that's pretty important yeah. to make sure that they're engaging the material. We engage it with them reflectively, and then they share their what they're wanting to do this week. And then we start the next week, like I said, with looking, you know, what was your experience? What did you do? How did it go? And you know, we have about, we have we usually for the first year, we use two coaches. So you kind of have different perspectives. Yeah. Uh, you have about six to eight planters and obviously not everybody can talk on everything. And so you kind of key in on a few, you hone in deeply and 
with the idea that we can all learn from this person as well yeah. and what they're doing. But that's that's essentially the, the flow mm. of the coaching call. Yeah, as have you seen them uh, start to implement uh, what they have learned? Uh, how how do you assess uh, a healthy church? What is what does church health look like? Um, and how do we know that we are? I, I mean, looking like Jesus in the middle of yeah yeah yeah, yeah sure church. <laughs> well, so like. Uh, I, I think this is kind of where uh, one of the ways is like their understanding of the four spaces of belonging. So really key to our training is we kind of, I feel like right now the the tail is wagging the dog in the sense that public space is kind of most people's primary space mm-hmm. uh, in the North America. And what we uh, do in our training is make personal space within social space, the primary. So mm-hmm. intimate space being those three to four people, yeah. So, uh, personal space being that five to 12, social space being the 20 to 50, 70 or more being public space. Uh, today, maybe 90% of people's energy goes to public spaces. Right. We hope to get people before they start a public space so they don't do it for another year or two. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and our goal, really, the first year is very mm. simple. Like our learning output is to start a discipleship core of about five to 12 people. Yeah. And together they are building a social space. So that discipleship core mm. is a bounded set uh, yeah. by, by invite only so that they can actually grow deep. And the social space is oriented around mission where we hope that, that there's like at least 50% of the people that are non-Christians. And, and, mm. and that's what they're learning and training to build together. And the goal is at the end of the year, they've just done that. They've started a, they've gone yeah. through a discipleship pathway of, eight months uh, and they've grown their social space to, you know, 20 to 50 people and now they're ready to multiply. So Mm. uh, a healthy church, we we basically move discipleship from the peripheral of what the church does. And we don't think discipleship is what you get from the pulpit. Uh, We like to say that, you know, not only do we imitate Jesus, the disciple, but we imitate Jesus, the disciple maker. And he Mm. clearly was oriented around, his 90% was on, on those 12 and uh, he brought them in those other spaces with him, but this was his core space that he knew he was leaving it Mm. with these people uh, to, to turn the world upside down. Yeah. And so healthy church means like you actually have people that looking more like Jesus. Yeah. That takes discipleship that takes going in into our lives deeply Mm. And there's that, like, uh, as opposed to one-on-one, which obviously you have some of that too, but you, th- there, I think there's a, a social element to that personal space that brings dynamics yeah. out that one-on-one never does. Mm-hmm. And so, and uh, what makes it dynamic too is that they're building this social space, which is dedicated to mission. Uh, it's not just another place for community to get together. That's yeah. where we're doing mission based on your neighborhood or network, uh, mm. the oikos that you're kind of trying to connect with. Mm. So that's kind of the core of what we're building. So health to me is like people are growing in the character and competencies of Jesus. They're looking more like him, which means that they know how to live on mission well yeah. and love others. They know how to be a community together with each other. I think we, instead of asking how many people come to our service, we need to ask how many people look more like Jesus? How many people yeah. are displaying the fruit of the spirit? Yeah. If you have that, you have a healthy church. Yeah. Uh, if you don't have that, it doesn't matter what your size is, mm. it's not healthy. Oh, well, uh, for you, what, 
those four spaces of belonging, what's the dynamics and the interchange between those? Um, I've just found that in a lot of our movements that we're trying, you know, as for me, as somebody who leads a missions agency that wants to see church planting movements around the world, and we, we have uh, church planters, for me, it seems like that social space is a missing piece. It's a missing element. And I don't know how to, to get there. We have these uh, smaller communities of people doing life-on-life life discipleship. They're learning together. They're starting to apply what they're learning. Um, but that social space seems to be missing. How? What's that interplay? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's probably the most critical element. So again, like uh, with the discipleship space, we, we like to kind of make a strong distinction between a small group and the discipleship core. Yeah. Uh, small group are often open. Uh, mm. The discipleship core is not. Uh, small group, you know, tends to be around kind of learning in the head knowledge. And this is about learning formation in the way that we talked about, you know, the uh, small group uh, uh, d- doesn't tend to be that missional. And this is kind of like intricately tied to social space. So yeah. if, if discipleship doesn't help people, and it means like uh, this kind of goes back to people will learn more by imitation as we immerse ourselves in mission than yeah. they will instruction. And so what we do is the, the subject core develops a rule and rhythm of life around kind of the three elements of the church, which is communion, community, and commission. And so uh, community, what's a spiritual discipline that helps you connect and have a fervent love for God, uh, community for each other, and then commission is the mission. And so one of the things that, one of the simple practices that we would encourage everybody in the discipleship core to have is pray for five non-Christians daily and meet with one non-Christian once a week over a coffee, a dinner, lunch, or whatever. Now, if everybody in the discipleship core does that now if they can't do that that's what discipleship is about (laughs) hey you know are you dealing with a fear or whatever well come over with me you can do dinner with me a couple times learn how not only you don't have to be afraid of it but it can be quite exciting and energizing and until and when everybody has those practices then you have some uh you know you have some open spaces where you start to invite like uh, your non-Christian friends to. And I think for for me, like there's three things to think about. You can have a connecting uh, space, which is just where your Christian friends and non-Christian friends connect. There's not any uh, obvious kind of spirituality to it. There's not testimonies and so forth. It's just like friends meeting each other. I mean, it it could be a game night. It could be a dinner or it could be whatever. We, we when we were at UCLA, we did these uh, dollar dinners or invited students to eat a homemade dinner for a dollar. And we prayed at the beginning, that's as spiritual as it gets. There's people connecting and so forth. Then there, you have a, a, a sharing event, which is maybe uh, a little bit more where someone does share yeah. something about uh, maybe their own testimony or whatever. Uh, and, uh, and then the third is challenging event where that's kind of where you actually challenge people to look at where they're at with God. Now, I think like for a lot of our spaces, if we keep the that social space on a week to week or every other week basis in the in the just the kind of connecting and sharing that it's ideal to kind of build these bridges of like six weeks for those who seem ready 
to go through a more challenging aspect of things. Uh, and, and I think that oftentimes that group can become the next discipleship core starting the next social space. Mm. That discipleship core is always on mission. Uh, they're always praying for as well because they're praying for lost people. They're, they're saying, yes, I'm going to meet with uh, lost people. And then, you know, as we're building that mission out, um, there's a pathway for for the people there to multiply out into a new discipleship core. Um, yeah. yeah, I like like how that. Have you seen that play out uh, in practice uh, as you've been been coaching uh, and training some church planters? And can you give me an example or two um, of what? Yeah, yeah, that looks like. Yeah, yeah. I I'll first kind of say this: like it's a uh, it takes a while for people to reorient to being church in this way. And so we encounter people at different places, you know, some that have kind of deconstructed their, what church meant to them and they're starting to reconstruct. There's others that haven't, you know, haven't started deconstructing yet. So it kind of, it all depends on where they're at in that journey. Yeah, It's going to take longer for people that need to, because what I found out is like uh, somebody can, you know, in, let's say we're kind of dialoguing, coaching, and someone can tell me the right things. That doesn't mean that they've owned it, mm. and it doesn't mean that they're actually convicted about it. Yeah. The only way I know they're convicted is that they, you know, their practice changes. Mm. And so, all, all I'm saying in our experience of coaching, that we'll have, uh, we we encounter people a lot of ways, and our goal is just to kind of move them a few steps. And so, if we meet somebody who's, they hear it and they'll say, oh my gosh, this is like perfect. They're already oriented toward it. They become convinced of it. We, you know, so there's a church in Honolulu uh, led by Un Strasser. She's a Korean physician. She's only planting like part-time. She's a physician full-time. Well, that's part-time too, uh, about two and a half days. She's a mother of three, a wife. And, uh, they started uh, their first year focused on the discipleship core and starting a social space. She said 90% of her time was devoted to that discipleship space mm. and building uh, together with them, building the social space. So at the end of one year, that's what they had. By year mm. two, a number of the people in her discipleship core were able to start. So they started, they had three, three discipleship cores with mm. three mid-sized groups. Uh, by year three, what she said, now there's nine of them. Wow. And so this this is probably our high example. Yeah. And it becomes because there there was a deep conviction in the leader mm. that this particular way of doing church was important and good and she could uh bring people on board with it to be yeah. honest. Yeah. Uh there's uh there's another one where we're working with a church that's primarily Korean so they come from this very big church idea. They they came to us uh, with the goal of kind of learning more about discipleship. Now they started their public gathering right when they entered our training, but they had like, you know, 15, 20 people at it. It was kind of like a personal space in this huge public space, which was felt awkward. Yeah. But they did that for the whole first year of the training. And there was three guys in the church that were part of the training. It really wasn't until the next year when we had the three wives uh, do the training. <laughs> they they seemed to get it faster than the guys, or maybe they just needed the wives on board. But like, uh, and with COVID hitting, they they started to realize like this public space isn't hasn't been working. Number one, even before yeah. COVID. Now with COVID, we can't really do it anyway. 
So they were forced to start mm. with this discipleship <laughs> core <laughs> and they really worked on it and they're working through what this pathway looks like for them. Wow. And now they've just started to do these social spaces. So they have two of these social spaces <laughs> going on, uh, but it took a long time. And uh, so unlike Un, who's kind of ready to roll and she kind of mm. has an apostolic prophetic thing, yeah. we're kind of dealing with a pastor teacher gifting, yeah. everything's slower, but like, uh, they, they feel like they just become Christians because it's the first time they're meeting their neighbors. The first time wow. they're, they're praying for non-Christians. This is not a part of their whole Christian life. Wow. Yeah. And so it's a, uh, they're slow, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited about their progress, you know, yeah, and they're, they're moving toward it with the, with the great excitement and the stories that you hear is like, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just amazing. So, you know, That's awesome. is that success? You know, is that, Faithful, yeah, I think like there's something happening there. Yep. It's not as like glamorous as the other story, but it's a it's another story that's worth yeah. uh, sharing. Yeah, that's that's really great. You know, I'd love to to switch up transition a little bit to uh, your new book coming out, uh, the scandal of leadership unmasking the powers of domination in the church. It's a very tantalizing title. Um, what, where what are you going after um, in this book? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I'll try to explain the title too. Like, obviously, we have a leadership crisis in yeah. the church in North America, and it's probably the case all over the world. And so, what I'm trying to do, and and I think a lot of it deals with a a, a misuse of power uh, in in various ways. And so, I'm trying to give a deeper diagnosis to the problem of domineering leadership in the church. Hmm. And the way that I'm trying to go about it is, I I, I think that the the pop our, our misuse of power is all wrapped up in powers. And when I say the powers, I'm mm. talking about Satan, demonic, and the principalities and powers. Yeah. Uh, I, I think we, we don't usually go there because we don't have a real good understanding of that. Uh, mm. I think either people have a pre-modern view or they may have a modern view or whatever type of view they have of the powers. But I don't think our understanding of the powers shapes anything about the life that we lead in, in, yeah. a, in a general way. And so uh, I, I really take quite a bit of time uh, understanding the powers. And there is a fresh perspective that I want to give on each of these elements. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, and, 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 uh, and maybe the one the, the concrete way they, that they affect leaders. I, I, I define leadership as identity praxis, you know, like what we do yeah. in our methodology and uh, tell us where, where we're going and where we're taking the congregation. Hmm. Yeah. And, the, and at each of those three points, uh, the powers are at work uh, to subvert our leadership. Hmm. And so uh, Stringfellow talks about the principalities and powers, which by the way, I think is the only part of the powers that can be redeemed. Um, uh, I don't see redemption for the devil or the demonic. I yeah. think those are like actually, um, you know, uh, anyway, the, that, that's an a, a important distinction. But the principalities and powers, which you see in Colossians, uh, mm-hmm. are redeemed. And, uh, and so you have uh, image. He talks about like there's uh, every, every one of us has an image. Uh, there's two people or, or two entities that go by the same name. You know, mm-hmm. there's Joshua the person and Joshua the image. Or yeah. he, he uses a, the, the uh, Marilyn Monroe. There's Marilyn Monroe, the person, Marilyn Monroe, the image. The image 
seeks to possess us until we fully give ourselves over to the image instead mm. of living into our image of God. Mm. And, and this is the, the weakest of the principalities, but nonetheless powerful. Yeah. So, for example, when you, if you listen to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill and you kind of look at the Mark Driscoll story, yeah. you know, there, there came a point where it, to me, is very clear that he was possessed by his image instead of mm. uh, living in his image of God. He mm. was the brand. Yeah. Uh, he spent two hundred thousand yeah. dollars to get his book on the bestseller list. Like yeah. this was an image that had fully grabbed him and possessed him. Mm. Um, and then you have the church, uh, or the institution could be the church, or it could be other things. For uh, you know, you could take like uh, you know, with uh, so you have institution and ideology are the other two elements. Yeah. And by the way, the image kind of correlates. Uh, I correlate it to identity, mm. I, I institution to the uh, to the. the praxis and the uh tell us to to the uh uh ideology and mm. what's interesting is i i i see when i examine the the temptations of christ by the mm. way like something that we don't give enough attention to uh before anybody goes on ministry uh how are what are they doing it's an encounter with the powers mm. right uh yeah. and uh, it's you know jesus is baptized the father says, you know, this is my son in whom I'm all pleased. And the spirit drives him into the desert or wilderness. Yep. And the first temptation is like, you know, turn this rock into uh, bread. Uh, right before he says that, though, the devil says, if you are the son of God. Hmm. In other words, he was going right after his identity. Yeah. Because that is the core element of us. Hmm. Like if we yeah. are not grounded in Christ, if our identity is not secure, and that's really the beginning of the Lord's prayer, rooted identity. Yeah. Then we are basically at the devil's mercy. Like yeah. we will just do, we will, we will be possessed by our image instead, hmm. because we will kind of, we will imitate our heroes. Uh, hmm. And if it's not Jesus, we will fall into all kinds of, hmm. you know, disastrous places. So the, but the second by way of Luke was, you know, I'll give you all these kingdoms. And yeah. this is kind of the, uh, uh, Jackie Lua calls this the, you know, the temptation of power and it's kind of how we use our power. And I think if our identity is not secure, if our telos mm. is messed up, our power is going to be messed up as well. Mm. Um, the third temptation, uh, he calls, Lua calls it a religious temptation because Jesus is at the, on the top of the temple. Yeah. And even at this point, the, the a second time the devil says, if you are the son of God, doesn't the scripture say, throw yourself from the temple the angels mm. will catch you yeah now he's using the bible uh to <laughs> tempt jesus yeah. and so he calls us a religious temptation or an ideological religious temptation mm. and i i basically uh, uh string fellows in in uh, rene gerard's understanding of ideology is like ideology i think many of us are captive to ideology yeah. without knowing it and when we're captive by ideology it affects the way that we read scripture so mm. even like paul before he came to mm. Christ, the way he read scripture caused yeah. him to, you know, be accompaniment to the violence against the church itself. Mm. That was his understanding of scripture. Yeah. And he could probably knew the scripture better than oh. all of us, you know, <laughs> and, but he had an ideological reading of it. Mm. And so we don't realize that we were captive to ideology, but I think one of the ways that George says we know we're captive to ideology is when we, we create an enemy as a way of creating our own sense of belonging, or we demonize the other. Mm. And, yeah. 
And, uh, and so if we build community by demonizing the other, mm. I think we can know that we're off the path of Jesus. Mm. Jesus was willing to become the forgiving victim. And, yeah. and, and, and he's calling us into that space as well. Mm. well it sounds fascinating. You know, I was uh, a couple of weeks ago sitting around uh, a table with a, a bunch of, of church leaders, and we were talking about, uh, about power dynamics and power. And, uh, you know, as, as men over women, um, white over coloreds, yeah, uh, whatever, all these different powers, and and if we actually get some some different power dynamic, um, one of the questions was how if say uh, somebody else in the the church has more power than the other, how do we not uh, not have the same sins of our past? And go a different way because usually a lot of times when you know, I, as I read Miroslav Volf and and others about uh, what does it look like when people subjugate people and then and then those uh, oppressed people get power, they usually oppress others. Um, and so in the midst of that dynamic, one of the things that I thought um, that was missing in our discussion was that the discussion of identity. And I think what you have have said as that as that core that image that identity um and i think you're you're really on to something i love uh what you did here to be able to to balance those powers how can we balance those powers and not see the other as as evil and subjugate people and what is that yeah like? yeah so i think this it requires uh probably more than we can do in a couple of minutes here but like <laughs> I, I think uh so one of the guys that I study and interact with is a guy named Rene Girard, who is a mm -hmm. French uh, cultural anthropologist. And uh, he, you know, he, he taught at John Hopkins, a bunch of different places at Stanford. He got his first PhD in Paris. He's a French guy. Uh, second PhD in the U.S. has seven conferred <laughs> PhDs from seven different countries and six in Europe and one in Canada. <laughs> I'm just trying to say he's a brainiac, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, he, he kind of converses with Freud and Nietzsche and Levi Strauss and all of these people, as opposed to, uh, you know, different theologians. And uh, he basically made three discoveries that I think are important for us to understand yeah. if we're going to kind of, because like you said that, like, uh, whatever groups, uh, if there is rivalry between groups, uh, I, that's what I want us to understand. Because rivalry will kind of create doubles, and then we just mimic what the other group is doing. And yeah. that's why over the centuries, you know, one group gets power, another group's power, and everybody acts the same way. Yeah. Because we're imitating what the other group did. Yeah. So what, and, and this is kind of his first uh, discovery was this, and it was from reading, like, what separates out, like, Shakespeare, Dostoevsky, Proust, and these great authors, what he called mm. novelists from what he called the romantic. His first book in the French title was The Romantic Lie and the Novelistic Truth. Hmm. The romantic lie was that our desires, we, we create our own desires. So whatever the object of our desire is, we just hmm. we desire it and will it to being. Uh, what all of the great authors did, and this is what he learned from them, because what makes a great author, whatever they're writing feels real to life. Like yeah. we, can, we can see ourselves in it, right? Yeah. A good movie, a good book, all of the great writers eventually in their writing came to a place where desire was uh, not like the straight line, but it was a triangle, 
meaning that our desires are gained through our models. Whoever we look up to, mm. we imitate their desires. Mm. So here's the thing. So if we imitate their desire, let's kind of put this in the, I bring this into the church context. Let's yeah. say you're the, a lead pastor, or let's say someone's a lead pastor. Uh, it, not just that they're the lead pastor, but they desire to be the lead pastor. Mm. Yeah. Now, if anybody looks up to them, they will desire to be the lead pastor. Hmm. Well, what happens here is that the leader becomes an obstacle to the disciple getting what they desire, the very hmm. desire that they gave them. This is a scandal. The word scandal on hmm. that Jesus uses is an obstacle. Same word. The hmm. scandal of leadership is that's what I'm talking about when yeah. I talk about the scandal of leadership is that when we have unhealthy desires in our disciples imitate that desire mm. it will bring us into unconsciously subconsciously in rivalry with <laughs> the leader and so now now this rivalry and if there's multiple like uh scandals in other words yeah. multiple disciples getting that same desire <laughs> what that creates is a mimetic crisis and in a mimetic mm. crisis what happens is everybody goes against everybody mm. now in uh ancient days before there was even been any judicial branch or law, uh, really, you know, primitive people. What happened at this point is the, the second discovery that Gerard came with, and that is the scapegoat mechanism. And this is a mechanism that kind of kicks in. It's fairly random. And uh, they, they, the, mimetically, the, the, the whole community lands on a scapegoat. Yeah. And in the beginning, they killed that person. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, while, while it's all kind of random, the scapegoat tended to have common characteristics. Mm. They were uh, either very weak or deformed or, or they were a minority, uh, you know, these types of things. Mm. Because one of the, or it could be the king, it could be the leader. The commonality between those at the bottom and those at the top is they're, they both have one step in the community and they also are differentiated enough that they have a foot outside of the community. Mm. So by killing them, it doesn't kind of create revenge, mm. but rather it creates a peace among the community until the process kind of repeats itself all over again. Mm. And so there, the scapegoat mechanism is the second thing that happens. And so you'll see this, uh, even though we have the intelligence of the scapegoat now, yeah, we, we know kind of this happens. But the third discovery that he came up with, and this is what actually made this kind of uh, Frenchman, who's this deep philosopher, who, by the way, uh, brought whole postmodernism to America because he hosted a conference at John Hopkins with Derrida and all of the postmodern thinkers, because mm -hmm. he was in that level of thinking. Um, he, in his third book, kind of very came out as a, as a Christian, even though he became a Christian right in his first book. Um, as he was kind of studying this thing and realized he was a victim of this kind of mimetic desire. Yeah. And, but the third thing that he discovered was that, that Jesus became the willing scapegoat, right? The, the yeah. first, uh, the Jews and the Romans scapegoated him. And by the way, before Jesus, for the way the scapegoating worked is everybody had to consider you guilty. Hmm. There, there was no innocence in the scapegoat the scapegoat everybody considered guilty. And this is why even the disciples could not identify with Jesus anymore because they got caught in the mimetic uh, contagion mm. of the crowd. And, and, and so even <laughs> Peter denied him to a 13-year-old girl. Think about what that meant in that time. You know? <laughs> 
So Jesus willingly becomes a scapegoat in order mm. to reveal the scapegoat mechanism that's happened since, uh, you know, the very beginning, mm. since, since Cain and Abel. That's yeah. really where we see it first happen. And so he's revealing, and that's also kind of the breaking loose of the powers that are at work. Mm. And so a lot of what I'm saying is like, uh, we, we probably are always mimicking the power structures that we have seen and we haven't broken out of them. And the only way that George says that we can uh, overcome the powers is to imitate Jesus. Mm. Now, when I say that, like that sounds like nice and easy kind of idea here, <laughs> yeah. but like, uh, and here's the thing, like Jesus, the only way that he could overcome the powers in the temptations was to imitate the father. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I can, I can only do what I see the father doing. I can only say what the father's like. He was imitating the father. And when we yeah. imitate Christ, we will also kind of, you know, uh, have a connection to the father in the mm -hmm. same way. Yeah. I think this is where it comes to Philippians 2 and understanding better the canonic journey that he went on mm. and, and uh, obedience and humility and ultimately becoming this forgiving victim that we have to learn. And we learn it from a guy who's in jail, who's facing death. And he's trying to say this. He first lifts Jesus as a model. Then he lifts up Timothy. Then he lifts up Epaphrodites. And then he lifts up himself as a different way of doing leadership, a different way of belonging, and a different way of being. And it comes down to all of us get our sense of identity from the group that we belong to or that we feel we belong to the most. Yeah. And our and our belonging is connected to our rationality. Hmm. Um, we, we actually see things, you know, that's why we, you know, our, whatever is true to us or fake news to us is ultimately about the group that we primarily belong to. Yeah. Uh, so our belonging affects our rationality. Hmm. And what I think Paul is telling you is to like, do you really belong to Christ? Yeah. And what we have in Philippians is there's, a, there's two leaders that are, have entered into mimetic rivalry and the way that Paul is trying to resolve that is through first look at Jesus, have this mind that was in Christ, look at some other good examples, and then look at my example and follow me. Because the only way out of that is through imitation of good models instead mm. of bad models. Wow. That's fascinating. And I'm I'm excited to to dive deeper into that uh, and continue to to walk uh, people through this these ideas. And I think if we could start to get a, a different perspective and different models and we and imitate Christ, I think we could actually uh, see a different result than we've been seeing that there. Uh, and so I'm excited uh, for this new book. When is it? Uh, when, when Probably October. I think it's October is the October. Current. Come on, Chair, oh. you're getting me, you're getting me excited. <laughs> I'm, I have to I'm, wait I'm in October. the middle of finishing the final chapter, and then I have to <laughs> edit a few more chapters, and then you know, get, yeah, yeah, process. that's good. I'm, re I'm really excited. Well, there's a, but a here, yeah. Go ahead. Well, let me say, so the, the scandal of leadership. The first scandal is that when we become a scandal to those we're discipling. But the opposite way is following the scandalous way of Christ. And it is a mm. scandal to in the current world that we live in. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Um, you know, uh, a couple questions here at the end. One, I'd like to ask, uh, if you could go back to your 21-year-old self, what advice would you give? Uh, you know, I would say read, you know, widely, you know, read, read things that are different than what you believe, you know, kind of expand your thinking, uh, your critical thinking and just, uh, and, you know, I, I, I think, uh, 
I think our, you know, I was very passionate for Christ at that time. So um, I, I would say that that's probably been one of the more important things for me, you know? Yeah, that's good. So uh, with that, anything you've been reading or watching lately you could recommend? <laughs> well, I, most of my reading has kind of been in the realm of my current book. So my uh, three uh, primary people that I connect with is uh, Walter Wink and his trilogy on the powers. Rene Girard has about 20 books and William Stringfellow has about 16 books. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of like to go deep with uh, people that I feel like are, are deep themselves. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I'm also, I've, I've enjoyed uh, Sarah Coakley and some of her kind of systematic theology. And uh, one of the examples I'm going to use as a kind of modern example to follow that I under, feel like understands kinetic, Spirituality and leadership is uh, Oscar Romero, in the, who uh, ultimately, uh, in his quest to follow Christ, was shot as he was giving mass. Hmm. And uh, and yeah. and his his story in El Salvador is quite interesting. Hmm. That's good. Yeah, where can uh, people find you? Anything that you want to <laughs> anything you, you know, want I, to I mean, uh, I, I to tell a, people about? Yeah, like. I'm not as socially uh, <laughs> geared right now because I'm my writing cave, but like uh, I do tweet sometimes at Dream Awakener and uh, I, I, I don't really blog much anymore, but I do have my old blogs on jrwoodward.com and uh, at V3 uh, movement. Uh, sometimes I'll do an article here and there, uh, but yeah, right now I'm like, uh, I'm not as social media uh, engaged, but I probably will start. Once I get out of my writing cave. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, JR, it was a, just a pleasure to talk to you. And it was uh, fascinating for me just to, to talk through these uh, four spaces of belonging and how we could actually start to, to multiply church um, and to be on mission together and then really talk about uh, the powers and how we can start to imitate Christ uh, in the midst of things and, and get better models. Um, so thank you very much. It was just a, yeah. it was a pleasure. It was great. Thanks. Good to see you, man. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you want to see more episodes like this, go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron of the show. You can help us produce more episodes so that we could see the body of Christ look more like Jesus. If you become a patron on patreon.com slash shifting culture, uh, you will get early access to episodes. You will get episode guides. You will get bonus shows, hopefully, and more. So go to patreon.com slash shifting culture and become a monthly patron. Also leave a rating and review on Apple podcasts. Uh, It really helps us out and helps us find new listeners to the show and just go and share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, people that you think would enjoy it as well. Thank you again for listening to the show. I hope you have a great week.